Okay, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Michelle T. Yeah. That was great. Um, thank you guys all for being here so much. Um, I know that a lot of people who are here are also writers and also friends of Justin. And I just feel like there should be more of these. Like every, We should all just keep doing these great gatherings and um, where we read Justin's work and maybe the work of other poets who've, who are gone, who need you know remembering. It's so important. Um, oh, the last time I read with Justin, he um, Justin was like such a weird little prankster. Like he, his poems could be so heavy and intense and gorgeous, and then he was just such a goofball. You know, he was really funny and kind of shy, and so he would sometimes bust out with things, and you would just they would just crack you up because they always seemed somewhat unexpected coming from him. Um, like once he sent me in the mail uh, a cookie cutter. I was running a reading series in San Francisco where I always make cookies. It was a fetus cookie cutter, so I could make fe- fetus cookies. Well, it was better than that. It was for the holidays. It was like a fetal Jesus that he sent me, you know? So he did shit like that. Like, he found a, a tarot deck on the internet and printed it out for me, and it was a Snoopy tarot deck, you know? I have a fucking Peanuts tarot deck because of Justin Chen. So, um, the last time I read with him was uh, in San Francisco at YBCA, and um, he brought googly eyes, and he handed googly eyes out to everybody for no reason. So, I have some googly eyes, um, you know, the ad for them said that they were self-adhesive and they fucking lied. They're not self-adhesive. So it's going to require a little bit more of like a, a crafting on your part to do things, to, to really do things with these. But I really hope that everybody does in, in Justin's honor. I think that little would make him happier than imagining a world stuck with googly eyes, you know, for him. So here, take as many as, you know, take a little tiny handful. And, um... You know, Justin's, Justin's four poetry books are up here, 98 Wounds, Harmless Medicine, Bite Hard, and Gutted. He's got more books also that I'm not sure are here, but you can certainly find them. You can you know order them from the publisher or whatever. Um, Mongrel, Burden of Ashes, and uh, Attack of the Man-Eating Lotus Flower. They're all just filled with, you know, his really singular voice of just heartbreaking one minute and just perverted and gross and hilarious the next minute and then heartbreaking again. I'm going to read one piece from gutted um and here we go i would not mind getting the cancer that ali mcgraw gets in love story the cancer where as you lay dying you become more beautiful and more moisturized (laughs) the classic death would be garbo's camille but all that coughing and flopping around on the bed is just so undignified i realize she had consumption but at least nicole kidman and moulin rouge still managed to karaoke with her consumption I certainly wouldn't want the cancer Deborah Winger gets in terms of endearment. Come to laugh, come to cry, come to care, come to terms. Oh, just go away already. (laughs) The death I would most like is Bette Midler's In the Rose. We're up on stage in front of a packed house. I'll tell the story of the first time I heard the blues. And as the story winds down, my speech all slurry and raised to an odd minor chord. I'll wonder, why is it so dark? Who turned off all the lights? Where has everybody gone? Then I will collapse and die. Footnote. While the strains of the rose play in the background, I want that, the version that is a duet with Bette Midler and Winona Judd. That is the gayest rendition ever. Before you even get to the second first verse, before you find out that the one who, one who won't be taken cannot seem to give, or that love is only for the lucky and the strong, you just want to be fucked up the arse. <laughs> My one request for my funeral is that at no point should I believe I can fly be sung, played, hummed, mumbled, muttered, mentioned, or thought of. This is how poltergeist activity gets started. (laughs) But I know, I know my death will not kill me. Rather, it is the death of others that will kill me. I know, he just, you know, he thought you you were fucking laughing. And then he got you. Um, all right, so all the people who are going to read up here tonight are friends of Justin's, and they're writers or they're writer adjacent. Um, and I'm not going to go into everyone's bios, but they're all great people, and you should look them up. And the first is Rika Aoki. So um, a few years ago, I got a note in my email saying... Congratulations, you've just won the Eli Coppola Chapbook Award. And I go, that's really good. I wonder who's you. (laughs) And it didn't really dawn on me that I actually won the damn thing. And um, Justin was the judge. And um, first off, you know, it's just kind of ironic that 
that award was also a memorial for somebody very dear, you know, Eli Coppola. Um, just before I get started, really, I mean, I'm, I'm really happy that we can be here right now remembering Justin, but um, if you have a writer that you really kind of idolize or you really like, tell them, tell them now. You know, when I, when I, this is, I'm reading from uh, Gutted, and here, here's the thing, you know, I mean, like, um, it wasn't just that Justin was queer, but that he was Asian, and, and he ate rice, and, and he hated you guys behind your back, just like me. And, <laughs> no, what I mean is, like, it's like somebody I could identify with. It was somebody who made it possible. And, you know, he's writing about things like lick my butt and stuff. And so I figured, even being trans and everything, there's really nothing I can do that, you know, there, there, there are no rules here. I'm going to be fine. You know, it's like, you know, write a, write a story about dog fucking, and I'm sure it's okay. And you know, it, 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 he, really, um, he really was a hero of mine. This is actually gutted. It's, it's kind, of a, kind of a valuable book because it's the only book of mine that's... Uh, I own that signed by Justin because I was too scared. I was too intimidated to, to actually go up and have him sign my book. And so I bought this and it was pre-signed. And uh, when I finally met him, and he said such beautiful things about my work, you know, I'll tell you that um, that started the ball rolling. And uh, I might have nice things said about my work, but to have your hero tell you, your work is beautiful. I'm really, really blessed. So, um, the other thing, too, is it's like things just resonate. I'm going to read this piece called Boxing Day 2004. Um, It's about the tsunami in 2004 that wrecked up the Indian Ocean. Um, I've had tsunamis take away my family twice, both in the Hawaii tsunami and then in the uh, Fukushima um, tsunami. I had some of my relatives taken away. That's where my family's from. So... um, Anyway, Boxing Day 2004. When the tide goes out as it does, faithful as clockwork, the beach is awash with mud-bloated bodies dotting the endless shore of debris. Each belly distended in all eerily the same clay-stayed color, some naked, others clinging on to the bits and drabs of clothing not stripped off by currents but all their extremities partially eaten by crabs and iguanas and tide-hungry fish, now being pecked at by gulls and terns and pigeons, and even the sparrows want a bit of the pluck. Someone will come swinging an umbrella or a broom, shooing those hungry birds away, and more will join, swinging and swatting away. Might as well put on boxing gloves to punch at a wave or take a cricket back to crest, but never mind. Until arms tire in the swelter, the day's calling pulls inland. The bodies will be retrieved before the tide returns, and it does, punctual, and picking up the littered sprawl, riding flotsam on its calm, splashing spine, depositing more bodies and more wreckage on the ebb. The beach will eventually be cleared, the sands baked shell-white as ever, if not ever unsoiled. And we will tell the children that there's nothing to be afraid of, that it's okay to eat fish, that it's okay to picnic, to play in the surf and tide pools, to make sandcastles and dig for clams. We want them to enjoy the beach like we did when we were that age, when there was nothing to be afraid of. And then finally, um, I asked Michelle just for permission here. This book is my first poetry book. I mean, I had a novel, and uh, I, I asked Justin again, can you do me a favor? And, you know, I had gotten... This is a very, very small press. It was This is a beauty press, the first press run by a trans woman of color. I actually chose this press because I wanted to help my own community. But nobody really wanted to touch, you know, I was like, I asked people if they could review the book and blah, 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 blah. Justin was really the only one who said, sure. And he rocked it. And he read this. And, you know, I had I had been away, read, you know, it's like I had written and he liked my first he liked my chapbook. I've got this new stuff, and I'm thinking, God, I hope in the time I didn't all of a sudden suck. You know, it's like, great, great, great. Please like this, please. And, and he, he wrote this beautiful thing for me right over here, which I just, yeah. But he never got a chance to hear me read. And so I'm just going to read a little bit of this for, for him, and then I think I'm going <laughs> to cry. I really love the guy. What beatifies leftover low mein, styrofoam, 
chopsticks, plastic forks, two napkins, and three packs of crappy soy sauce neither of us will use. You slog home drenched and empty from the work you swear you only do for the money that we both know otherwise. Rents increasing 4.5%. LA wants $61.42 in taxes we don't owe. What trip to Paris? We're hoping to visit the supermarket between paychecks. Leftovers for the walk, the stock pot, leftover rice, leftover bok choy. <laughs> Yesterday I yearned for when I, could bag a, when I could buy a bag of salad without caring how quickly even the freshest greens spoil. Yesterday I yearned for clean dishes and a clean refrigerator. But yesterday, I could tell you how someone waited a little longer to hold the elevator door. How the Walgreens clerk heard me sniffle and said, I hope you feel better. Or the helpful woman at the post office saying, oh, don't worry, people forget the postage rates all the time. And today, as I entered the liquor store, an actor rushed past me to buy lemon drops and then dashed to the theater next door. I got a two-liter of Diet Coke and three cans of sardines and tomato sauce and stammered, Kamsabnida, to the shop owner who knew I said it wrong, yet smiled and nodded completely and simply to me. One can forge documents, reinvent identities, concatenate acronyms, be lost in our flags, our labels, our, unfulfill our unfilled prescriptions, and our lists of the dead. Though the cure for cancer may not cure cancer, or suicide, or a trip to the doctor, who will whisper, I'll go with you, be scared with you, trust what you say, and always be here. Build with me, walk with me, grow old and tired, and share supper with me. And with you I light a candle, and with you I reheat the noodles, or so we hope, we hope. When we are weak, we can say we know what it feels like to truly love. Today, a sparrow was perched on the banana tree, so the hummingbirds are probably too frightened to land. And near the galaxy's core, a black hole stripped a pearl blue star into ribbons of fire and poetry is all one has strength to hear when we don't have enough daylight to waste even a little food. Leftovers go to stir-fry. Stir-fry becomes soup. And soup is what a lover needs after a lifetime of saving the world. Thank you. Thanks, Rika. Um, next person up here is Raquel Gutierrez. Hi, hello, everyone. Um, uh, I'm Raquel, and uh, you know Justin. Uh, I've never met Justin, and I arrived late to Justin's work. And um, I, you know, I've been a confidant to many uh, queer men of color, and have uh, lost uh, a few uh, along the way. And um, you know, Justin's death uh, coincided also with another uh, brilliant, um, equally uh, uh, as brilliant. Um, uh, a person uh, who passed away around Christmas, uh, Horacio Roque Ramirez, and uh, just um, thinking about as 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 I get older, as you all get older, um, and um, hoping that everyone can make it to fifty, hoping that everyone can now make it to forty. Um, anyway, uh, so I'm going to be reading um, "Refugeeing from Bite Hard." And for all the uh, diasporic uh, queer men of color, um, trying to find uh, some semblance of uh, recognition uh, in the spaces that they inhabit, in their pursuits of pleasure, in their complicated pursuits of pleasure. Uh, here's for Horacio, here's for Justin Chin. I'm going to read a poem um, that I wrote when uh, Jose Munoz passed away a few years ago. Um, number 10. How to create the room for mourning away from the terror of territorialism for the dejected Angelino. Each wave of grief blunted with each cocktail. By the third one, we could speak the unmentionable. Imagine that you would no longer walk among us. Oh, the cruelty in that naming. Our cynicism did not prepare us. Our critical imperatives did not prepare us. Our infighting did not prepare us. Our chosen family did not protect us. We never fed utopia beyond the boozy conference or beyond the reach of the galaxy. Even she knew your name. 
smack talk, abundant. We sigh wistfully at the power that called you an addict behind your back. They got the year of your birth wrong, all of them. Probably could not find the till day, an accent mark, if their lives depended on it. But neither could you. And I'm going to be reading just an excerpt of Refuging. Um, it's, it's fairly long. It's gorgeous. <clears throat> One. Where is my refuge, my fine and feathered friend, sitting in the blue glow of the steam room, where men pass each other like ghosts, silent, suspicious, surveying, surveying and strapped for some humanness? I look through the billowing wisps of vapor to the man standing at the door. His strong limbs, all I ever knew how to lean on. His broad, brown body, all the touch I ever remember. How often I have wanted him to feel his warm spit against mine and to smell his fleshy need. And if I never saw his face again, I will know I last saw it, handsome as ever, passport size in the back pages of a newspaper. And while I chase his shadow down dimly lit hallways with sticky floors and sounds of other men finding their bits of godsend, I find that I do not show up in a mirror anymore. I have become yet another ghost, like Casper, friendly and unselective. Where is my refuge, my fine and feathered friend, in the smoke of the wood fire oven, the smells of roast pork and chicken, the chipping of ice blocks, the popping of anchor beer for the adults, Pepsi for the kids, and the clacking of mahjong tiles. I watch my family at reunion. Uncles and aunts prying into each other's children, secretly comparing notes. Where is my refuge, my fine and feathery friend, hiding in the space in which I loved you? And the body in which I find you demands it. Where is my refuge, my fine and festive friend, from the roles of filial concern inbred through centuries of parent and child, cycles of the necessity of home? And while I hear the static of long-distance phone calls and air letters, all caught between come and stay, but homes and familial comforts hold nothing in this court of duty, shame, and responsibility. Where is my refuge, my worn and weary friend, from the men who loved me, from the myths and philosophies thrust upon me and my race? Where is my refuge from the belief that I will live to 105, that I will never get cancer, nor high blood pressure, nor heart disease? Where is my refuge from the men who say, I don't really like Asians, but they're so much safer to fuck these days? Where is my refuge, my fine, my, fine, my feathery, my worn, my weary friend? Thank you. Thanks, Raquel. Um, next up, Tara Jepson. I was just reaching down for my glasses. Um, hey, guys. I'm so... I don't like when... Anyway, I'm going to read a couple from Gutted as well. I love Justin. Justin was part of my like coming to San Francisco in the 90s and us becoming friends and like just going to readings nonstop and always being out dicking around, being drunk and uh, I don't know. I I just every when Justin would read, I would just feel so liberated and so like my mind being like, "Oh yeah, I can do that with writing. I can be both emotional and and funny and fucked up." Cuz I lean toward not saying the right thing a lot of the time, so it's kind of nice to have someone who just like put it in the fabric of being a writer in our world to just let things be that way. So I actually put three together. Just because. I mean, I thought this was a nice time for me to shine. I'm just kidding. I just put it, I just put these um, together because I liked them and I didn't know how many you're supposed to. <laughs> just thought that would be so wonderfully gross if I got up and just talked a lot about myself. But anyway, so I'm going to, um, reading from Gutted. I always thought that my death would somehow involve wildebeests, but I now know that it is unlikely to happen unless I take matters into my own hands. Why wait for the shit to hit the fan? Take some initiative, pick the shit up, and fling it at the fan yourself. I find that an overhand throw is best for doing this. 
I would say that I throw like a girl, but that is meaningless and wholly sexist. No, I throw like a gay man whose muscles have atrophied from an unrelenting year of chemotherapy and fatigue. There are people who are sick. There are people who are ill. There is a difference. These have been long and difficult years, and nothing in my life has prepared me for how to cope. But a body copes, and man, how it does. I can tolerate another year of this fatigue. I can take those 25-hour flights there and 25-hour flights back without 40, much less 12, winks. I can plan a funeral for 40. What will kill me will be the small things. I cannot bear to wash another plate, to sweep the floor, to change the sheets. But I have to because I fell asleep while having dinner in bed watching telly. Mid-chew burrito, I passed out, and when I woke, early morning hours later, all the lights on, the cat sprawled all over the mess of beans and rice and blankets. While cleaning up, I wept. Isn't that beautiful? I like that. Um, I'm just, these two are short. Not to punish you with time. I've read somewhere that the Icelandic language has recognized 27 words for ghosts and that the Albanian has 17 for mustache and that in Japanese the eye of a child and the eye of an adult are different words. Papa, I saw a spooky with a handlebar mustache. I don't think so, little one. That spirit's got a zapata. I was once told the name, which I've since forgotten, of the groove found in corduroy. Last year, 3,500 new words were added to the Oxford English Dictionary. Given the gargantuan heft and sheer depth of each and all the language in this world, committed to page, throat hands, have some pity on the concierge, the front desk and staff at the hotel babble. How do words fail so unspeakably in the box-cutter grip of grief? How many inexpressible sadnesses weigh against how many indescribable happinesses? An equal measure of elephants in one weighing pan against toenails in the other. What is this ache's native tongue? Why can I not name all that I don't know how to ask for? Trying to is like asking a heathen to swear on a stack of Bibles. Easier to wipe the slate, shake the etch-a-sketch. I have no wish to forget my grief, nor be healed of it. There is room in my heart and head and gut. There is enough room, too, for silence. They may even be room for... They may even be room someday for stillness. You will be shocked at how much this world can grace, and how little of that will ever salt your tongue or find its way into your lexicon. There should be enough language in our lifetime to ask for God. There should be words enough to tame our hearts, and to beg it, stay. This is the last one. The other night I dreamt of a father who lasted forever. I loved him and I loathed him. I scorned his gifts. I disdained him and I wanted him. I wanted him to see me, yet I lurked in the dark. I respected him and feared him. I saw his gold, I saw his shit. I sold his gold and I shoveled his shit. I stole his shirts, his car, his fillings. He caned me, belted me. I was naughty, a disciplined child. I broke his bones and then his spirit. I fed him and clothed him. I held him to my breath. He was comfort to my terror. I lived in such mighty abandoning waves. He soothed my homesickness. He was my home. I his sick. I counted his pills, prepared his shot. He did not complain. I bitched like mad. He never shed a single tear, even as I filled rooms with mine. I slept fetal by his side, dreamt his dreams. I stoned his dreams. Oh, what mighty boulders I flung at his pebbly dreams. He gave me all the food that money could buy. He gave me an ulcer no money in the world would look at. I made him presents of my youthful blame, such lovely bitter nuggets. I obeyed him and I trusted him. He saw to it that I always did. I showed him the rose that had bloomed in the garden and he showed me the hole where we could bury the cat. I understood his ways. I prayed with him, for him, around him. And when he wasn't looking, I prayed for someone else. He took the chip shot off my shoulder. I took the chips out of his old block. He hid my ugly scars, and I built us a house of cards, all aces, sevens, and jokers. I took the dust off his wings, hoping he would fly and show me how. He took the sleep out of my heart. This time I would be the one who went away, the one everyone counted on who didn't stay. In this dream of the father that lasted forever, my dad forgave me, and this time I learned to forgive myself. My rage then ceased to need a name. A dream only becomes one when you wake up. I wake up. I am lying in rubble. Everything is mud. My homes have become holes. I have no strength to sit up. I have no shovel. That's all. Thank you, Tara. Um, it's so intense to hear pieces that I heard him read because his, you know, I 
I'll hear, yeah, really powerfully. I mean, anyone who is lucky enough to hear him hear him read, he just had such a distinctive um, reading style and just so, so good. I want to read this little piece from Gutted called Directions. I've told you once before not to ask Gertrude Stein for directions. We need to get there by supper time. <laughs> Our next reader up here is Clint Catalyst. Hi, you guys. It's great to be here. You know, um, I remember I was thinking about it. I first became familiar with Justin as a concept when I moved to San Francisco. It was the summer of 94. And I remember walking down Valencia Street, and I was impressed because in the window of ATA... Wait, is that place still there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. So um, there was um, a flyer for uh, a show of his coming up. Well, actually, I, first I was impressed because it wasn't even Xerox. It was, like, printed. And it said on it, performance poet Justin Chin. And I was like, performance poet? Like, I was coming from a small town in Arkansas. I like, grew up on a gravel road, the whole deal. So, like, this was a concept to me, performance poet. And I was like, I wonder what it would be like to date a performance poet. <laughs> I could, like, watch his stuff while he's up on the stage. And then, like, I looked at the picture, you know? <laughs> and then I looked at the picture, and he had on a white T-shirt and tattoos. And so, like, in my mind then, of course, that meant that he had a black leather jacket. It was like the Mary-Kate to the Ashley. Like, he's got a black leather jacket. And then I just imagined, like, the black leather jacket over my shoulder while, while he was in the mosh pit. Like, I completely took it there. So, so um, I still don't know what it's like to date a performance poet. But um, Justin was just always so supportive and great. And uh, when Michelle asked me to be involved in this, I just went with the first piece that came to mind, which has meant different things to me over the years, which, again, I think is um, just a sign of great writing. It's back when I knew who I was. I was content to spend my afternoons wondering what codependent meant, not realizing that those lazy, humid daylight hours was better spent figuring out the physics of dependency and coding dreams. Back when I knew who I was, I was much better than I ever thought I was. I could conjugate fuck like nobody's business. Fuck me. Fuck you. Fuck it. Fuck him. Fuck her. Fuck them. Fuck yourself. Holy fuck. Goddamn fuck it. I could shovel dead pets off the driveway that my aunt ran over on her way to choir practice and not shed a single tear. I could choke down every family fight about money, every caning that would come for no reason after those fights, every time we were forced to go to my rich relatives for dinner and we'd find ourselves in the kitchen cooking and doing the dishes. I believed I knew the meaning of alcohol. I believed I knew how to get out of every single scrap. I believed I wasn't going to make 25. I believed in 18 molecules of carbon, 21 molecules of hydrogen, 3 oxygen, and 1 fab nitrogen, all in a sweet mixture enough to make me feel like Jennifer Beals in Flashdance, twirling my ass in front of the snotty audition, praying for a stinking place in the dance-a-thon of actuality. Back when my balls were the size of Brazil, and my ego was the size of the Antarctica, and my courage was the size of phlegm, I learned to trust few people. Learn to want little and to need even less. Learn to say, fuck it, with such ease and venom. The most cynical rattlesnake would have its underbelly turned emerald in two seconds flat. You could wake to find yourself in some sweet danger, in some piss-flavored version of addiction designed to make up for lost time, lost ideals, lost lovers, lost causes, lost savers, but shit. These days, all I find is myself back when I was, back in the conga line, a perpetual desire, the territory of an incessant need. I crave my one habit of a good man, and I want to secede from the grip of addiction philosophy, from the colony of, I should have known better. Fuck that 12-step thing, I say. I like to keep my options open. I like to have the option of get absolutely fucked up when I feel like it and not feel like I fucked up, damn it. Do things change that much? Can some stupid sign from the Almighty whip you right around? Maybe I should be looking for visions of Jesus and billboards of spaghetti sauce, visions of Buddha and men's semen. Maybe I'll be a much better person if I knew who I was back when I knew who I was, but who the fuck do I think I am? I can't even piss straight in the bowl. Can't tell my lover I want to cook him breakfast for the rest of my life. Can't even cross against the light. Ooh, walk to the light, walk to the light. Can't make my bills on time nor balance my checkbook. Can't dance, can't mosh, can't get fucked up like I used to. Not that I want to, anyway. Can't take it like a man, whatever that means. All I can is kiss who I was, back when I knew who I was, goodbye. One great big tongue smooch and whistle a good journey as he walks to the light and falls off the edge of the earth and into a peaceful hell. I'll meet up with him later.
Thank you, Clint Catalyst, performance poet Clint Catalyst. <laughs> um, next up here is Irene Soriano. I wrote down what I was going to say because uh, memory always fails me. Um, I met Justin when uh, Bite Hard came out, I think, what, 97? And um, uh, Professor Ming Ma <laughs> called me one day and said, um, there's this awesome poet coming to L.A. and can you drive him around? And I said, yes. And um, it was the most interesting afternoon that I spent with a poet. Um, you know, later on, I found out that he was really good friends with um, what I call the, well, they were part of the Asian American Literary Triumvirate, and that's um, of Asian America. So that was Lisa Asagi, Zach Lindmark, and of course, Justin Chin. Um, I think to me, Zach's work represented um, the extreme truths in the world through his literary characters, and then Lisa had the craft and beauty um, to put out exquisite imagery, and then there's Justin, stark, searing, but always tender in what he and his characters had to say. Um, what first struck me about Justin when I first met him was his kind nature, even when he was making fun of me. <laughs> when I first met him, um, I drove him to his LA readings and it struck me how kind and considerate he always was. Did you want to do this? Do you want to go here? Should we leave now? Um, and I also loved his style. You know that promo photo he sent around in the very beginning with his tattoos going like this? Um, I said, that is a man with style. Um, I ran an Asian American reading series during that time, and um, none of the poets that I booked looked like him or wrote anything about the stuff that he did. Um, and when I heard him finally read, I was immediately hooked, and I bought all his books. Uh, we stayed in touch through literary projects, and he would send me the latest literary goings-on with his Art Buffalo project, which is his collaboration with Zach and Lisa. Of course, we lost touch through the years, but I always asked around, um, how's Justin? And every, everyone always said, he's fine. I always told myself, I better drop him a line, but always failed to do so. And then he's gone. I will remember his laughter, his kindness, his style, and his work. I feel enriched having met him and wish I hadn't waited so long to reconnect. So the, uh, I'm a big dog lady, and uh, the poem I'm going to read is Puppy. The best part of a man and a dog is the muzzle, then the paw. In the muzzle, find mercy. In the paw, find comfort. The best dog in my life ended sadly. Bowser was put down when his muzzle got too gray. His legs too arthritic and his mind too muddled. He wouldn't notice cars backing out of driveways anymore. Our favors fell to the cat. In cartoons, the feline and the canine are archetypal enemies, foils for comic plots. Between your dog and my cat, we find things to believe in, things to cross that divide of genetics and evolution, evidence. How you touched my cat with your rough fingers and take her to drink out of the faucet. How your dog panics and howls like a cow at the abattoir. When you go running at the park, leaving him with me, his head on my lap, we commiserate in our panic as you slip out of sight. Mercy is falling asleep in front of the telly on a humid suburban California night with the dog at our feet, the fleas biting your mouth on my neck. Sleeping on my hard futon, our bodies twisted into shapes that would disgust a chiropractor so the cat can curl at blanket's edge. <laughs> this is what our animals tell me. My passion for you is puppy strong, a gardenia floating in a dog's bowl. Thank you, Irene. Um, next up here is Beth Pickens. Oh, I forgot. I'm taking pictures of Justin's mom, and I wanted to get one of the of the crowd. 
Hi, everyone. Hi. <laughs> I feel like that. Um, I had from 2009 to 2013, was it 9, 10, 11, 12, 13? Yeah, for five years, I had the great fortune to run an art, a queer writer's retreat in Mexico with Michelle T. and Ali Liebegott. And in 2010, Justin came. And we were really excited that he was coming that year because he was in the midst of writing what would be his last published work, 98 Wounds. And he talked about this book as being his pillow book. And... Um, and so it was really cool to be at this retreat, which was very co close quarters. And some of you here went to that retreat, and you remember how close the quarters were. The writers would share rooms. Sometimes the writers shared beds, not like in a sexy way, but just because they had to, so we could bring as many people as we wanted. Um, and so, <laughs> and it was really amazing to be there with him while he was making this work. Um, Often the stuff that happened at this retreat, which was right on the beach, would get woven into people's early drafts of what they were writing. And for people who went on this retreat, you remember there were a lot of orange cats involved in this retreat. There were always like a fresh crop of orange beach cats around. And in an early draft of 98 Wounds, Justin originally had written this great line of, that essentially went, um, when I tell you I love you, you say what the orange cat said to the oranger cat. <laughs> And I, it wasn't in the final, but I remembered it, and I thought it was, and I've been looking for it ever since I found out he was, that he was in the hospital, and I can't believe he died. He died so young. It's so sad, but, you know, like, I'm writer-adjacent. I'm not a writer, and as somebody who just really loves writers, like, the best thing you could do is just, like, keep reading their work, and you know, like, I'm a Capricorn. I don't usually cry. <laughs> But it's just really sad. Right before this started, I turned to Michelle and I said, this is so cool that we're doing this. It's so sad. Um, so I'm going to read something really short from this book. But I first wanted to tell you, when we were at that retreat, you know, Justin was sick for a really long time. He was on a lot of medication. And the medication made it hard for him to sleep. He would toss and turn and he sweated a lot. And so we very quickly realized that he wasn't sleeping in the bedroom of the condo on the beach because he didn't want to wake up the people he was sharing a room with. He was sleeping out in the living room on a couch, and he didn't want to disturb them during the night. So when I would get up in the morning to make coffee for everyone, there was a two-liter bottle filled with urine <laughs> that he'd been peeing in all night. <laughs> because he didn't want to wake up his roommates to use the bathroom. <laughs> And that is just like him to me perfectly. It's like something so sweet and sick, like all together. <laughs> and for people, you know, who knew him or didn't know him, he had a cat that really he loved. And that cat found a new home. Okay, so this is from his last book, at which the party favor for this was poppers. He gave out bottles of poppers at his book party. <laughs> And I still have them. They're at my apartment. I meant to bring them. I forgot them, but if anybody wants to do them, they're at my house. Okay. So this is from his pillow book. Things, white, things one might take to be a sign of great meaning and significance, but are really unremarkable and inconsequential. Double rainbows. Two-headed calves. Feral parrots roasting in, the, roosting in the palm trees at first light butterflies at night, a long shriveled plant coming back to life, seeing the number 11 or ones and zeros in various permutations, finding pennies on the street or in cracked dreams, spaces, dreams where avifana speak to you, dreams of financial riches, all nightmares induced by eating mission burritos before bedtime, <laughs> roadkill. What happens after good night? What happens after the bedtime story? We imagined apocalypse because it was easier than the complicated futures that lie ahead. A future fraught with baffling new technologies, impenetrable financial power structures, ever-shifting alliances and collapsing social systems, perplexingly malevolent microorganisms, and a language devolving and impotent. Death was more imaginable than the person that all the decisions and burdens of adulthood and survival would make of us. Charging bullishly into life with all barrels loaded without the fear of consequences was an act of desperation, though at the time some might have mistaken it for fearlessness, youthful prerogative or selfish immaturity. It was a declaration that there were more terrible things than death. There were desires so urgent for anesthesia, distraction, the dark brooding forces of need, the quelling of survivor's guilt. There were corrections so grave to undertake. 
The defying of fate's gauntlet, the dissent against conformity and apathy, the mutiny against the downward spiral of despair and our inherited pessimism. Gambling, drug-taking, and love were our rituals of hope. But all hope suffers from its own insufficiency. Failure was our tutoring guide, what we mostly learned from. Thanks, Beth Pickens. Um, next up here is Trevor Healy. So I wanted Justin's cat to be here. So, um, you know, what you were saying, sweet and sick, and also that really funny, and yet he'd get right to the deep, dark core. He had an amazing gift for, like, uniting opposites, really. And it was amazing. So, um, you know, he was ill for a long time, and I... And I I, I felt like, gosh, he's so young. But then, on the other hand, I look at all the books you wrote. It's like, what a body of work! Like he, he like did his life. Like it's like he just got it done fast. Like I'm taking forever, right? Or maybe six more years. Who knows? I mean, I'm 53. Um, so, in other words, I just feel sort of proud of Justin. It's like he did his life, and so he left early. But what a body of work, you know? And and he looked beautiful in the hospital. And there, there's some good omen to that. I've seen that a few times, and I felt like Justin looks just. I just wanted to climb in the little. Bit with him. He looked really young and sweet and totally healthy. It was great. Anyway, so I had a crazy boyfriend named Michael, and apparently so did Justin, had several. And when he read this poem, I was like, oh my God, I should have written this. And I was jealous. I was often jealous of him. He wrote amazing poems. And I was going to try to wear... There's no way that's going to work through the poem, but anyway. Okay, ex-boyfriend's named Michael. My mother is concerned that I haven't met a nice boy to settle down with. She keeps asking me if I've met the right guy yet. Well, Mom, there have been some nice guys who just didn't work out, some guys that have broken my heart, and there have been ex-boyfriends named Michael. (laughs) Ex-boyfriend named Michael, number one, was a sheer mistake. But we make such delightful mistakes when we're young. You're supposed to learn from your mistakes, but heck. Ex-boyfriend named Michael, number two, I've washed him right out of my colon. Just for once, I'd like to date a man and not his therapist. (laughs) Ex-boyfriend named Michael number three said I had communication problems, and I said, oh, go fuck yourself, asshole. (laughs) What I should have said was, honey, I am trying to understand, understand your feelings of frustration at our seemingly inept articulations of our emotions, but I do have some unresolved feelings of anger towards you, so please, go fuck yourself, asshole. But maybe there's the off chance he's right. I have never been that great at communicating. Ex-boyfriend named Michael, number four. I should have known better the first time we met and went back to his apartment to fuck. His idea of fuck music was Dan Fogelberg's greatest hits. I asked him to change the CD, and he changed it to the only thing that could have been worse, Neil Diamond Live at Madison Square Garden. (laughs) Coming to America, indeed. But I stuck with him, and every fuck at his place was sheer hell. I tried telling him that his taste in music sucked and that I could seriously help him, but somehow I lacked the communication skills to do just that. But then I thought I loved him, and then I was young enough and foolish enough to believe that love can overcome Linda Ronstad. It cannot. But love did not stop me from throwing his Yanni CDs behind the bookcase, nor did it stop me from touching his Ballads of Madison County CD on the gas stove. Oh, what a beautiful blaze it was. He swore the CD was a gift, but like all ex-boyfriends named Michael, he was a lying dog. Now I'm getting ahead of myself here. That's about creatively destroying ex-boyfriend's property, not about ex-boyfriend's named Michael. Ex-boyfriend named Michael number five was suffering from a severe case, a severe case of yellow fever and dumped me for some little Taiwanese guy fresh off the damn boat. Two weeks in the U.S. and the little pissant, the pissant faggot manages to find his way to Cafe Hairdo ready to be picked up by his American dream of homosexual romance. I can just see him sitting there, legs crossed, working his non-threatening little third world charm, offering to share... <laughs> His table and newspaper. I can just see them now, sharing hair care products, making mutual consensual decisions about dinner, movie, sex, and their emotional well-being. I can see them sitting on the sofa with the dictionary in their laps, trying to figure out the difficult words in Barbara DeAngelis' Making Love Work video seminar, and thinking about adopting a fox terrier named Honey. I can see them having deep, deep discussions about which one of them has a better butt. You do. You do. No, you do. Stop it. You do. Yours is tight and tanned, but yours is pert and angry. What a pair of goddamn fucking freaks. I would just like to see them in a big car accident, crashing into an oncoming truck, carrying a shipment of Ginzu kitchen knives. 
But hey, I'm not bitter. I'm descriptive. I'm not jaded. I just have too many ex-boyfriends named Michael. Just once, I'd like to see everything of my life with ex-boyfriends named Michael laid out on a fat barge sent off to the landfill of affection. I'll watch the barge ferry its way through the flotsam of therapy and crabs, dish soap and bad sack, dish soap, dish soap and bad sack, shared shirts and worry, devotion and drugs, pissed off nights and legless drunken revelry. I'll wave goodbye and I'll be fine. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Trevor Healy. Um, and our last person up here tonight is Ali Liebegott. Oh, this is so nice. Thank you, Noel, for letting us do this. You know, I think the googly eyes, he had taken a syringe and put things that looked like blood and pus in them to pass out, um, if I remember right. Um, I love Justin so much. Uh, I well, I just want to share a couple things, which is that um, he, you know, I just feel this thing about poets like I didn't Justin and I didn't have coffee or do things like that, but we communicated. You know, we wrote each other letters, and um, I had uh, written him a letter, an email. You know, you know what I mean when I say letter. And um, I had sent him a poem, and just like a poet, you know, thing. And um, he wrote me back, and the poem I had written was called Faggot Dinosaur. And uh, he wrote back like maybe a month later, and he answered the letter, and he said, by the way, did I ever show you my faggot dinosaur poem I wrote, um, inspired by your faggot dinosaur poem? And I said no, and he included it. And um, I ended up uh, doing a journal called Faggot Dinosaur because of that. And it's uh, got, uh, they have some up there. It's like uh, 40 different people around the country writing poems called Faggot Dinosaur and making art, you know. And to me it was like, uh, I don't know, the, the best thing about being a writer is that weird intimacy you can have with people even though you don't have, you know, daily friendships like coffee and stuff. But also I taught 98 Wounds when um, I taught at Mills that horrible three years. And um, <laughs> actually I think it was only a year and a half and it felt like three. <laughs> and um, it's a disgusting book. It's very dirty and um, all of those people there were like couldn't deal, you know. And um, the best thing about that horrible job was that um, he substituted for me. And um, I had to miss two classes, and Justin took over my class, and it just gave me such great delight to think that all of these children, who were ne frankly never going to be writers, um, had to be in the presence of uh, Justin, and then they could write their letters to the administration about what should or should not be taught anywhere, you know? But, um, yeah, so I drove up when he was... Uh, after he got taken off life support, I drove up to San Francisco, and um, it was it was actually really beautiful. Um, his mother flew from Singapore, and brother, and um, she just went right to his bedside, and um, she was a nurse. And um, the the hospital room was it was so beautiful because it was twenty years of poets in there, and um, it was just this revolving door of writers, you know. And I just and his family and. Um, it was, I just thought, like, this is what I want when I die. You guys, this is what I want when I die. I want um, none of my students from Mills and um, only um, to be surrounded by, by writers, you know. And everyone kept saying to his family, you know, Justin's um, a great writer. We love Justin. Justin's an important writer. And his mother said, yeah, unless he's writing about you. <laughs> and I love that. I love that so much, you know, and um, they were, they just, his wit, you know, and um, it was just this, like, this circus of, like, ex-lovers and um, writers and his family, and um, it was, I'm uh, just, I just, I just loved him so much, and so I want to read his um, faggot dinosaur poem. Thanks for doing this, Michelle, and all the writers, and uh, Noel. 
The faggot dinosaur sits on his haunches and surveys his handiwork, writ across the walls of his cave, lit by stone lamps. In iron oxide and clay, in vidigris and moss, in mulch and meal, the scene is as luminous as a fevered dawn dream, fervid as wild memory. The mitigation of the woolly mammoths, the mating feasts of the horned water buffaloes, the balls-out struggle of the amphibious, the peaceful truce of the vertebrates, the faggot dinosaurs pleased, the deep reds he gets from those creatures by the salt lick, which he painstakingly masticates into a workable pulp. If he pulls the bones out beforehand, he discovers the reds take on an altogether different hue, an opalescent lava than a neon sunset. The umbers and ochres, everybody knows you got to get knee-deep in the mudflats and dig deep to get the best stuff. And for the still incomplete blue notes, he'll have to wait till the end of summer to get that. For when those bulbous, bulbous fruit growing by the primordial swamp ripen, not yet there, he checked a few days ago. It'll be months more, but who knows when really. Everyone's buzzing about the electrical storms. The scuttlebutt is f the flaming asteroid storm barreling towards the earth and sea. The faggot dinosaur pays scant attention to the yammering crowds. They've never been right, and he's never been interested in all their useless Twitter. By the swamp, he finds a new clutch of those soft-shelled creatures trying to walk on their two hind limbs. So adorable, so utterly delicious, and he likes to eat them on toothpicks. <laughs> but all the other dinosaurs laugh and ridicule him for it. Foo-la-la, they mock as they devour their prey and messy chomps. The taunts matter little to the faggot dinosaur, but for one brutish rex, who he's too shy to even look in the googly eye. Oh, I would never poke fun at your short little arms, he thinks. No, I would groom the spots you can't reach, every last spot. But tongue-tied, the faggot dinosaur retreats to his opus. The final touch will be the silhouette of two dinosaurs watching the world before them evolve. But he'll need a pile of blue for that. He'll be patient. It's not like I'm going anywhere soon, he thinks, as he watches... Oh, sorry. The first fiery showers bursting in the sky. It is one of the most beautiful spectacles he's witnessed, as if the sky was tearing open in bloom, as was his ventriculated heart. The early Cretaceous period was such bullshit. It'll get better. Just wait, you'll see. In the meantime... We can hole up here in my cave. We don't have to say anything. Just sit and wait out this asteroid storm. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.